Welcome to Deus Books. Join us on a journey into the heart of Catholicism through the most interesting readings, stories, and doctrines that the Church has to offer. There is not, and there never was on this earth, a work of human policy so well deserving of examination as the Roman Catholic Church. The history of that church joins together the two great ages of human civilization. No other institution is left standing, which carries the mind back to the times when the smoke of sacrifice rose from the Pantheon and when the camel leopards and tigers bounded in the Flavian Amphitheater. The proudest royal houses are but of yesterday, when compared with the line of the Supreme Pontiffs, the line that we trace back in an unbroken series, from the Pope who crowned Napoleon in the 19th century to the Pope who crowned Pepin in the 8th, and far beyond the time of Pepin, the August dynasty extends, till it is lost in the twilight of the fable. The Republic of Venice came next in antiquity, but the Republic of Venice was modern when compared with the papacy. And the Republic of Venice is gone, and the papacy remains. Yeah. So that was a nice little, nice little passage of... This is a book titled The Spirit of Catholicism by Carl Adam. And there's actually two or three other people that helped write this book. Um, back in the day, this book was like the quintessential, you want to know about your faith, this book. When you say back in the day, how Here, far are we going? This is how far I'm going. I'm going to the nineteen early 1900s, pre-World War II. Mm-hmm. This book is um, considered to bridge the gap of Vatican I in the 1800s and Vatican II in the 1960s. That this was like the ideal of like bridging that gap. Does that make sense? It's a big deal. Yeah. So, so keep in mind pre-Vatican II stuff, which right. means not very much communion with other denominations. Right. No discourse with other religions. Right virtually right um and still doing latin masses and all that yeah so good for context yeah let's do it yeah so basically the way this book works is it's just a sort of all-encompassing defense of defense and explanation of the catholic church um so he writes a little defensive um and he actually by today's lens, he's very critical of Protestants. But if you think about the time he's writing, he's actually not. It's probably progressive at that time. Yeah. You'll see. Yeah, it could be, yeah. You'll see. Because, I mean, prior to, prior, like, between Trent and, uh, or yeah, between Trent and Vatican II, I mean, Protestants were, like, anathema. Yeah. And so he's definitely less intense than that, and he's open to acknowledge. Well, like you said, parts. it was a bridge. Yeah. I mean, Vatican II acknowledged Protestants as our separated brothers and sisters in Christ. So it would make sense for him to be kind of a step before that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But it's good to keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is important to do when you're reading theology from different time periods. But Yes. Time periods matter, people. All right. Uh, we are in chapter one, introductory, but the, ti- the secondary title of this passage is The Truth 
will set you free. So he's just kind of rambling here. But let's, let's look at this passage. We Catholics acknowledge readily, without any shame, nay, with pride, that Catholicism cannot be identified simply and wholly with primitive Christianity, nor even with the gospel of Christ, in the same way that the great oak cannot be identified with the tiny acorn. There is no me- mechanical identity, but an organic identity. And we go further and say that thousands of years hence Catholicism will probably be even richer, more luxur- luxuriant, more manifold in dogma, morals, law and worship than the Catholicism of the present day. Oh, wow. Um, if you think about it, if... if uh, I don't think you've ever moved around so much as you have in the I last know. 30 seconds. What are you doing? I'm having an ADHD moment. Yes. The, <laughs> I'm on a couch, okay? <laughs> You're in this nice office chair. Do you uh, want to switch seats? No. This is tradition. Okay. <laughs> it's very Catholic to just endure this. Redemptive suffering, Jared. Hey, usually you yell at me on this podcast for doing something. Now I'm glad I get to turn the tables a little bit. (laughs) I know. Usually I'm like, you can't. I'm waving like people can see what I'm doing, but they can't. Yeah. Anyway, I think (laughs) I'm probably going to move again, but it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Un- you did that just to bother me, didn't you? I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, go on. Go on. All right. Well, let's 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 address this first. Are we yes. going to cut all this out or are we just going to leave this in? No, here? we're leaving it in, all man. Right. <laughs> I'll say this. What he's saying is that like if you think about it 5,000 years from now, the church is going to be even more of everything it is now. It's not an ancient religion. It's not a modern day religion. It's a all-encompassing religion that has a past, present, and future. Right. So if you think 5,000 years from now, what we might be talking about, Vatican II might be like the early church still. Right. So. I agree. It's important to like uh, just sort of widen your scope, I suppose, but. Which is also, again, I'm going to bring this up time and time again throughout this book, I'm sure. Excuse me. But. He's a step before the council. But think about the council, Vatican II, the Giornamento and the Ressourcement, where, you know, the the desire to be open, but also go back to the original sources. Mm -hmm. And so to look at the primitive church. And so it's interesting that he brings this up. Yeah. Here's what he says next. It is quite true. Catholicism is a union of contraries, but contraries are not contradictories. Wherever there is life, there you must have conflict and contrary. Even in purely biblical Christianity, and especially in the Old Testament religion, these conflicts and contraries may be observed. For only so is there a growth and continual emergence of new forms. The gospel of Christ would have been no living gospel— and the seed which he scattered, no living seed, if it had remained ever the tiny seed of 33 AD and had not struck root 
and had not assimilated foreign matter, and had not by the help of this foreign matter grown up into a tree so that the birds of the air dwell in its branches. I like that term, foreign matter. Yeah. What do you think he means by that? I think he's talking about, like, outside influence. So, like, Greek culture, Roman culture, like the... The idea that the church is going to take what's good about that stuff and almost like absorb yes. it. Is that? That's, that's how I was taking it. I mean, it's yeah. just, because a lot of people like to say, oh, Christmas, pagan, Easter, pagan, like all these pagan things. I'm making the microphone pop by saying pagan. Anyway, uh, here's the thing Christianity, when you look at um, like philosophy, like Christianity, Christ, God, truth. So Catholicism being the most complete form of Christianity, like it's only good to take things that are good and true and incorporate them into your practice when it's appropriate to do so. Because if it contains truth, and it's good, then why wouldn't I... It's from God. Yeah, exactly. So I like that he he uses that term foreign matter. Uh, It's kind of a gross term to me. Sounds like an alien. Well, like I've like I if you think of a science fiction movie, I've got this foreign <laughs> matter inside of me. <laughs> you would, but uh, I mean, but it makes sense. I mean, think about it. The and I don't like the church throughout its history has, you know, it's it's like be in the world, not of the world. Like go to all the nations, baptize them all. Like it's not charitable to be like. Everything you do is just terrible. Yeah. You would think, th- and, and and actually, Jesus did this. He taught from the standpoint of what people already knew with his parables and things. Like, he used, he used parables and his actions people recognized. Like, they were able to pick out parts of the uh, the their scriptures the hebrew bible the old testament when jesus was doing something they're like oh this is significant and so in the same way it's appropriate for the apostles and their collaborators the clergy and the laity to do the same thing with with uh, you know the new the new worlds yeah like oh you know like oh yeah this is so that's why i think it's healthy that for example you know, in, in different, like on different continents, you know, for example, like Africa or even in like the Pacific Islands, mass can look a little different. The yeah. ritual's the same, the rite's the same, but how that rite is made manifest is a little different. Yeah. If, uh, you know, in African it, culture, song and dance are huge. Yeah, and so if so, they want to have a 30-minute procession. Right, the procession is just a celebration, yeah. which is appropriate. And then and so and it's appropriate to their culture. And so it's absolutely good that this mustard seed of faith mixed with these foreign this foreign matter and foreign not in 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 the bad way, but objectively speaking, I think that's what he's going for here. 
is is ultimately glorifying God. Yeah. Yeah. Check, yeah. check this out. I'm ready. Just as the loving child alone can truly know the character of its beloved mother, and just as the deepest elements of that character, the tenderness and intimacies of her maternal love, cannot be demonstrated by argument, but only learnt by experience, just so only, belie- only the believing and loving Catholic can see into the heart of Catholicism and feeling, living, experiencing, discovering with that a spirit de finesse of which Pascal speaks, what touches the innermost soul. Amen. Yeah, that's something I need to hear because I like to argue, and I feel like that's always where I jump to. But his his point there is kind of saying that it's like the richness of Catholicism, there's a deepness to it that can't be explained through argumentation. It right. has to be experienced. Yeah. And we like to uh, we like to uh, quote or allude to Bishop Barron because he's awesome. Bishop Barron, I feel like, would agree with this when he talks about beauty. Yeah. Yeah, that does seem to be. Beauty draws people in. And so I could argue to him blue in the face about the the logistics of the liturgy and how it ties into scripture. But if you can experience a beautiful liturgy, I think that says way more than the arguments. For sure. Um, here, here is kind of the stuff we're talking about with Protestantism. Catholic voices right now are already proclaiming with assurance a victory of the imminent collapse of Protestantism. Heiler is correct in discerning a revival of the Catholic Church, even in the souls of non-Catholics, but they are wrong in speaking of this assurance of victory with which, with which the Catholics are alleged to be proclaiming. The phrase is a profane and unholy one. It degrades religion and makes it a party affair. When we are treating of religion, we should have humility, reverence, thankfulness, and joy, but no dogmatical assurance of victory. The future of Protestantism is God's business, and it rests with him whether the West is to return um, home to the Mother Church or not. So... that. To your point earlier, that that's at the time that was written, that's pr- a pretty progressive stance. Yeah, I would imagine that that is because uh, he's speaking to a couple modern movements going on. Right. Um, something called the Saint Boniface Society, which is sounds German. Yeah, he is a German theologian, by the way. Duh. Yes. Um, and and so it seems like he's speaking directly to them, but I imagine that's a, that was a little controversial at the time. Right, because. The way no salvation outside of the church was translated or interpreted at that time is, if you're not Catholic, that's it. So that would have been very progressive. But he's right. I I think, and I think that's also, again, alluding to what this is the bridge before Vatican II. I think that's what Vatican II gets to. Yeah. In saying that Protestants are separated brothers and sisters. Because they still profess Christ as Lord. They profess his death and his resurrection and salvation of souls, which is like the heart of the matter. And so we have to call them Christian. Um, 
and they just don't have the fullness of the faith which is possessed by the church, the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church alone. So, right, God's what 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 God's going to do with it is up is is God's business. All we can do as Catholics is just continue to proclaim the truth, live it, and help other people experience it. If we're not doing that, then we're not doing it right. Yeah. Yeah, and I I like the idea of degrade of if you talk like that you're degrading religion you're turning it into a party right. affair and I I think that that's very true and I'm glad that he calls that out for calls that out um, Catholics can get that way for sure oh absolutely um, so uh, here he goes on he says nowhere else in no other society is the idea of community of fellowship and doing and suffering and prayer and love and of growth and of formation and through such fellowship so strongly embedded in doctrine, morals, and worship as it is in the Catholic Church. Um, what do you think of that statement? He's basically saying that like, community is woven into our, into our doctrine. I agree with it. Because, the, I mean, look at the sacraments. The Mass is a communal affair. And the Mass, I mean, salvation history is, I mean, boom, that's the Mass. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's meant to be celebrated in community. Yeah. And he's going to, he's he's almost like attacking sort different types of spirituality uh, in this uh, in this chapter, but um, this is a good passage. He says, Catholicism calls for the whole personality, not merely a pious feeling, but also cool reason, and not with treason only, but with practical will, and not only the inner man of the intelligence, but also the outer man of the sensibility. Catholicism is, according to its whole being, the full and strong affirmation of the whole man, in the complete sum of all his life relations, Catholicism is the positive religion par excellence, essentially affirmation without subtraction. And in the full sense, essentially thesis, all non-Catholic creeds are essentially antithesis, conflict, contradiction, negation. Um, What he's describing is the both and of Catholicism, right? Yes, yes. And it's an interesting message because I don't think, if you talk about the Catholic Church, I don't think people automatically jump to this idea that it's a very affirming religion. Oh, absolutely not, yeah. I I think what people don't understand is, I think we're slowly starting to address this, which is a good thing. I think we're slowly getting to it. But... What the church means by we're created in God's image, it means that we're created in God's image. Yeah. So every part of our being belongs to God and can glorify God when it is used in accordance with the will of God. And so, you know, this, this speaks to all people of all personalities, dispositions, what have you. You belong to God. God made you. God loves you. And God wants you to glorify him 
with how you are. Now, how that's lived out, we have the beauty of the church to help us live that out. But ultimately, we are to live out who we are. <clears throat> now, I have to, excuse me. <clears throat> now, I have to add this disclaimer, because then there could be many arguments about that, on how, what that living out looks like. But that's that's the beauty going to the both end, because... We're made the way that we're made. We're also made to cooperate with nature. And so even though we have this ability to operate above nature or outside of nature, we are called to operate within nature. And so all of our being is meant to glorify God, operate within nature, and, and that's why Catholicism is like the, the, the par excellence of, of humanity or whatever you said. Yeah, and I want to point this out. I think when people think of the rigidity of the Catholic Church, they're obviously talking about their moral teachings, right? right. But I don't think they're taking... That's a very finite point of view. If you yeah. look at it from, like, just... What does the Church say about anthropology, humanity? It is affirming, especially compared to every other religion in the world, because every other religion is essentially is, is something like this. Platonic dualism, this idea that something is a part of me, my body, my instincts, my nature, mm -hmm. is evil. Right. And I have to do all these things to overcome it. Or the Eastern religions, I like life on earth is suffering and I have to reach a state of enlightenment to in order to escape it. Yeah. None of that is talked about in Catholicism. It's all about no, you follow these rules, you do these things because that's what makes you more you. It makes you yeah, more perfect. Right. And then when you get to heaven, you're ultimate, you know, perfected. Right. But it's a very different outlook on life. And he is right to call that an affirming outlook. It, you just have to, like, sort of widen your perspective, I, I think. Yeah. And sort of... Because if you're talking about... If you're talking about any of the ethics in the church that seem rigid, I mean, that's tip of the iceberg stuff. Yeah. So... I like that he I like that he called that out. Um now here's what he says on we're going in chapter two right now, and it's called Christ in the Church. And he's it's basically like this whole explanation about how even though the church has all these different stuff, saints, prayers, religion, or like uh like meditations, like sacraments, it's all centered around Christ. And that's the point he's trying to make in this in this section. Christ the Lord is the real self of the church. The church is the body permeated through and through by the redemptive might of Jesus. So intimate is this union of Christ with the church, so inseparable, natural, and essential, that St. Paul in his letters to the Colossians and Ephesians explicitly calls Christ the head of the body. Um, and so he, he basically, right there, he's saying is like, all that flows from the church flows from Christ, basically. Yeah. Well, he founded it. Her dogma, the church's dogma, aims at being nothing else than the truth of Christ's revelation presented to our belief by her authority. The glad tidings of all that precious reality and all that abound life which have entered this, our actual world along with the uncreated word. Um. 
I like this emphasis on Christ, though, because I think even, like, very devout Catholics can almost, like, get lost in the plethora of spirituality options that the church has. Yeah. That's why I think adoration is important. Adoration is, is very important. And I, I, I like that <clears throat> the church is moving back to uh, regular adoration in the Diocese of Cleveland and the United States. We're having a Eucharistic revival here in the next couple of years. And I think it's absolutely appropriate because Christ it should be the center of everything. You know, in you know, in the beginning was the Word. You know, it all starts and ends with Him, Alpha Omega, Source and Summit. Like that's so. Yeah, He has to be because as soon as He's not in the middle, as soon as He's not prime of place, we put something else in His place. And even if the intentions are good, you know, oh yeah, I have a devotion to Mary. Okay, yeah, but um, what's your relationship with Jesus like? Yeah. Is she actually leading you to are you following her lead to Christ? Because if you're just stopping at Mary, you don't have, it's not it. It ain't it. Um and so you have to you have to put him in the middle of everything. And 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 to the point about, you know, the, the dogma and things, the church it, the church has no authority to change Christ's teaching. None. Christ never gave the church the authority to do anything of that sort. So anyone holding out hope that the church is going to... They can illuminate it. They can they can explain it. Yes. They can uh, shed light on it. But you're right. They can't change it. Right. The way it's communicated might change. The way it's lived out might change. But the, the core dogmatic teachings cannot change change and if there's anyone that presents a change the magisterium would say that they're heretics yeah so like even if 90 percent of the world's catholics you know believe that uh, jesus wasn't human guess what 90 percent of catholics are now heretics like it's so yeah the church has no authority to change dogma it can define illumine like you said but that's it uh, he speaks about the sacraments sort of under the same umbrella. The sacraments are nothing else than a visible guarantee authenticated by the word of Jesus and the usage of the apostles that Jesus is working in the midst of us. At all the important stages of our little life, in its heights and in its depths, at the marriage altar and the cradle, at the sickbed, in all the crises and shocks that may befall us, Jesus stands by us under the veils of the grace-giving sacrament as our friend and consoler. I That's a really beautiful take on sacraments, I think, is that it's a, it's a reminder a guarantee and authentication, however he put it, that Jesus is with you throughout it all. Mm -hmm. And it's done in what I love about the sacraments. And this is what I think, you know, the, this is why, again, why the church would say that, you know, Protestant brothers and sisters, they're still Christians, but they don't have it all. You know, from, from the perspective of the sacraments are a, a like a visible, tangible, Grace from God. 
like confirmation, like you said, that he's in it with us all. It's it's not aloof. It's not just in my prayer. No, it's literally in tangible ways that I can interact with here on earth. You know, from the sacred oils to the to the Eucharist itself. You know, these are these are tangible things yeah. that that help as a human help us. Yeah, I think people will either like sort of dismiss the sacraments altogether, like undermine them, or or they might like treat them like magic spells. Right. Like little incantations <laughs> that are gonna protect me. Yeah. Um and so it's like how do you how do you get sort of in the middle of that? I mm-hmm. think I think the way he puts it is a pretty good way of doing that. Um but yeah, uh this was kind of speaking to what you were speaking to earlier about the church's authority, but he, he goes in a really interesting direction here. Um, and I like that he just sort of owns this. You'll know what I mean. He says, uh, Christ is the proper source of the church's power and authority, so much so that this authority is exercised only in his name and in the true and deepest sense belongs only to him. The whole constitution of the church is completely aristocratic and not democratic. Her authority coming from above, from Christ, and not from below the community. Mm-hmm. That's hard for us Americans to, yeah. to grasp. I imagine most people are like irking as they hear right. that. Right. I mean, <laughs> but but here's, here's how I look at it. You know, I look at it... The, the church, Christ, the Father, the, you know, the Holy Spirit, God, who am I to legislate God? That just doesn't make sense. It has to be top-down. Because yeah. like, God operates in a realm that I, I don't know... I, I can't even contemplate God completely. I can't fathom God. I can, I can only respond to God. I can juggle things in my mind, sure. But God is is so far beyond comprehension. Who are we mere mortals to legislate his dogmas? Makes no sense. And... Because of that, because we don't have an understanding of God and his, uh, his, the fullness of his will or the or fullness of understanding of his will and how he operates and how he is, like a lot of mystery, mystery is a big word, it has to be top-down. Because if I start legislating it, I'm going to go off the rails immediately. And we see this throughout church history. All these, you know, these schismatic movements... The Reformation is the is the big one, and and since then even within their circles, within the Protestant circles, I mean, there's constant division and this and change that and like move with the times and yada yada. What? There's no unity in that. Yeah, it to be a good to be a real Christian, it is incredibly. You have to be incredibly humble. You have to you have to be you have to like intentionally acknowledge that you're less than God. 
and that so to people that are of faith, like that's an obvious thing. Well, duh. But I think most people don't really understand the implications of what that means. Right. I mean, like it it means, and you and I have talked about this. If we if there's a little piece of the church that like we disagree with, we just take it on faith. Right. I mean, because and it's not because we're being dumb or we're being sheep. It's because it's like, no, I've seen enough of, of that that I'm just gonna I'm just gonna sort of accept this. Yeah. Um because we're not God. Right. Not even close to God. And history is filled with people who thought they were and did yeah. awful things. And uh to be a Christian, you it you have to get on your knees and pray essentially. And if you think about it, that's immensely liberating. I yeah, it, it's like oh, it can be if you let it be. Yeah. yeah, I don't have to. I don't have to figure this out. Oh, God figures this out. Sweet, I'm gonna move on. Now, granted, I don't want to belittle serious like situations where you know when we talk about like identity and, and things of that nature. I mean, yeah, that's a that's a big that's a big thing. But if I can get to the point where I can rest in the fact that. God loves me. I am His. He wants me to glorify Him with you know with my being. If I can be at peace with that, if I can get to that point, it, everything else starts to become bonus. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you know, for example, I I have I have uh, I, you know I have an ADHD brain. So like, my brain is wired differently than normative people's brains and that puts me into conflict a lot of times especially in the the academic circles uh especially in seminary where everything is like okay you're gonna do this you're gonna do this you're gonna do this and at, at, at some point i had to you know just accept the fact that uh this is this is how i made and not to see it as a curse, but as a capability. You know, it's like, okay, I don't know, you know, genetics, it's hereditary. So, like, genetics just dictated that I have an ADHD brain. All right, cool. I can't change it. So I, I have to look at, okay, how can I glorify God with how I am? Yeah. Cooperating, you know, and again, to what I said earlier, I have to cooperate with nature because that's where we're natural, we're we're creatures. So I have to cooperate with nature. And I have to, you know, seek goodwill, glorify God. Okay, cool. And that so that's like my virtue is then in managing ADHD and then figuring out a way to glorify God with it. That's where my virtue is. And that, that goes with for anybody. And, you know, so as long as we can get to that point where we trust God and cooperate with nature and seek to glorify him that's immensely freeing because i don't have to, i don't have to worry about all this stuff anymore yeah that's a really good way of putting it because i think people feel like they have to conform to a certain type of way and then what what happens is it either like you do conform or you just reject it all outright but maybe that's a better option i like that yeah um i was uh in one of my grad school classes, I was, it was a couple of students and myself, we were having a pretty heated discussion about um, something in religion. It had to do with heaven. I, I remember that. I don't remember what we were arguing, but I just remember it was going on forever. Like we were 
40 minutes into this argument back and forth back and forth and um and then finally there was a deacon in our class and i did, and one of us turned the deacon they're like what do you think and he goes you know i think uh when you guys all die and you get to heaven god's just gonna be like you know you tried you tried <laughs> but you were so wrong <laughs> he's like He's like, I always tell myself that when I'm like get bogged down in these discussions is like is like yeah, you're just going to you're not even going to get close to it. So he's just like, yeah. and I remember when he said that it like took all the wind out of my sail. And I was like, eh, that's kind of an interesting way of I'm like, yeah. he's not wrong, I guess. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think debating changing church teaching is a waste of time. I think finding ways finding solutions on how to live church teaching given one's disposition. Yeah. That is worth all the time. Uh, you know, like for example, if, if someone is, is, is gay, I think instead of debating whether or not to bless same sex unions, because the church clearly cannot do that. The Vatican's been clear on it repeatedly it's scriptural like why are we still debating this the reason we're debating it is because people are suffering from it okay cool you acknowledge the suffering but you uphold their human dignity and then you find them ways to participate in the church while cooperating with nature spend time on that i think ministries like eden invitation are great in that regard because they're, they're understanding who they are. They understand what their disposition happens to be. And so now they're looking for ways to live a fulfilling uh, life that's true to what, what God has revealed to us. Like, that is beautiful. I respect that. As hard as it must be, I can't tell you how hard it is because that's not my disposition. But th that's where... That's where the time has to be spent. And I think that's where Christ would want us to spend our time. Yeah, and I think that if you look to him as an example, it was much more of that. That was much more of the emphasis. Is like every time he was, you know, proposed someone or interacted with someone that was quote-unquote a problem or whatever, you know, his way of handling that was very different from everybody else's. Right. Um, and it was much more of that personal, dignified, compassionate response. And you're right. It, he didn't like rally to like change Roman legislation or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's an, it's, it's a definitely a more Christ-like approach. I think, I think you're spot on with that. Thanks. Um, I think I've agreed with you too much this podcast. Ne so <laughs> next thing you say, I'm going to disagree. with. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm going to read a passage so, so you forget that I said that, and, okay. then, you, and then you're surprised when I disagree. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, so he's talking about apostolic succession now. Ah. Ecclesiastical authority rests on apostolic succession upon the uninterrupted communication by imposition of hands, that commission which the apostles received from Christ. This apostolic commission, as passed on from bishop to bishop right down to our own day, is, if we regard it, its innermost nature, nothing else more than the messianic authority of Jesus. 
By means of succession, the authority is perpetuated and imparts the truth and grace of Jesus onto humanity. And therefore, behind ecclesiastical authority stands Jesus himself. Very complicated, very wordy way of saying that's our closest link to Jesus. It is Jesus, essentially. Bishops got their authority from Jesus. Right. That's what he's saying. And so if you want to be close to Jesus, if you want to believe as close to how, what Jesus actually taught and stuff, the, the thing to do is to acknowledge apostolic succession. That's kind of what he's saying. And that's where my conversion started with looking at apostolic succession. You shouldn't have looked at apostolic succession. Why not? <laughs> get it, get it. I know what you're doing. I'm, play, I'm playing into it. Why not? I didn't have a follow-up. Uh, I was, I was going <laughs> to ask, though, what are your thoughts on the, the SSPX, the Society of St. Pius X? Because they have bishops, somehow, and priests, and somehow they have sacraments that people can receive. What enlighten me on the organization more? So they're like they're the people that say like are they that, the non-Vatican two people? Yeah, they're not state of Acontis, but they're not Vatican two people. Weren't they formally like condemned by the church? They were, and then like Benedict, I think, tried to make peace with them. So they're like so they're not like excommunicated, but that's where I'm confused though, because they're not participating in the magisterium of the church. It's just like, I mean, to me, it's it's just like every other scandal you've had with the church hierarchy, you know. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go down a rabbit hole here to talk about this because we should talk about it, right? Yeah. Okay. So you're giving me the green light to explore because, like, another way to put this is like, so what if Martin Luther was a bishop? And was able to ordain priests and then ordain bishops. Would, would like, Lutherans not be, would they still fall in the, is that the only thing that keeps them from being part of the apostolic succession? Or is it that they just believe in key dogmatic things that the church doesn't believe in? Or, like, vice versa, the church believes in dogma and the Lutherans differ on it well, i think it's i think it's both i mean you can certainly fall out of grace you can lose your credentials to to teach right yeah like if you're a bishop you can get you can still get you know yeah revoked um it, it's it's not a new it's not a new problem like if i go back to the donatist controversy this is in the 300s a.d same discussion it was you had a bishop who was anointed by a bishop who they didn't like, and they thought, and he was a, a bad person. What he actually did was he apostatized his faith. And then the church persecution ended, so this guy, he regains his faculties back. He comes back to the church and then anoints another bishop. And so the whole thing was, why? how can this guy transmit the Holy Spirit? Because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. If, if he apostatized, right? Mm. 
the argument was St. Augustine actually solved this controversy. The argument St. Augustine made is we don't affect the sacraments. There is nothing you can do as a sinner to pollute Christ's sacraments. So it doesn't matter what he did. If he was an uh, anointed bishop and he anoints someone, it's valid. Because Christ is the one who baptizes us. Christ is the one who forgives our sins. Humans are just mediators of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so if if you extend that to all the different issues that happen with bishops— bishops that were participating in the sex scandals, bishops that are not in communion with the church is, is I guess what you're saying. Right. I, I think that, I think the key, the key there is, um, is just because you're bishop doesn't mean like everything you say goes your baptism. You could still, you could believe something that's wrong, but if you're baptizing in the faculties of the church, I think that's fine. I don't think it affects it because Christ is the one doing it, right? Right. So if I have a bishop from your the group that you just mentioned, and he, I go to confession with him, it doesn't mean if he's a priest in the church, it doesn't mean that his can my confession is invalid, right? Right. Because he's just mediating it. Yeah. I think it's like licit, illicit, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just, I just, I don't like it. Like to me, if you disagree with with an ecumenical council of the church and you openly reject it and reject the 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 like reject the documents, that but then you're breaking of, apostolic tradition. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So like to me, I would equate that with what Luther ended up doing. And so I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what that to me, like, okay, cool. A bishop was like, nah, I'm going to ordain priests and like not do this Vatican II stuff. Cause like, yeah. And a, like, cause like the Lutherans, like, I guess maybe it's because Lutherans don't believe in the real presence or whatever. To, like, is that, is that the only reason that, that communion, like in the Lutheran Church, is not considered valid communion. Well, yeah, and they they don't do the transubstantiation, right? So that's the main that's a main reason. So it's right? dogmatic. It's part, yeah, I think so. So since SSPX is, I guess, in line with dogmatic teaching of the church, they're still cool. In the sense that their sacraments are valid, but I think they're illicit. Here's the but issue: valid. you got to give me more information on these groups. I know I, that's the thing. So, are they're not excommunicated from the church? No, apparently not. And so I can go. So, what's the issue? They just don't acknowledge Vatican II. Correct. Okay. Hmm. I think, I don't know. That's a tricky one. I'm trying to find the info. Of this. Well, let, well, let's let's think of this analogy, Johannes. Okay. Think about the Orthodox Church. Right. The Orthodox Church. They have valid sacraments. They have they have valid sacraments, but they and he, their bishops are traced back the same way ours are. 
the same way the Catholic Church is, but they're not in full communion with the church. Gotcha. You know what I mean? All right. So the SSPX is like the Orthodox, basically. I guess that's a way of that's a way that's the closest thing I can think of. Right, because they're not excommunicated. Right, which means their their sacraments are valid. And it might maybe it gets to a point where it's like another schism, so to speak. But until that yeah. until that happens, I don't. Yeah, because like if they were excommunicated, then you could you couldn't receive. I think. Right. Yeah, because then you're renouncing. Which is what made of, which would was what made. The lifting of the excommunication with the Orthodox under St. Paul VI so significant. Right. They're not in communion, but sacramentally they're, they're, they're kosher. Yes. All because right. the only difference is the authority of the Pope, essentially. Right. That's their only theological difference. Right. Whereas with the SSPX, the only theological difference is Vatican II. And here's the thing about Vatican II— there were no doctrinal changes made at Vatican right. II. It was just commu- it was just pastoral. Right. It wasn't a dogmatic council. And so, yeah, that's probably what. There it is. That's why. That's why it's still valid. See, folks, it took us like ten minutes to get to this point. That's called we, dialogue. Yes, we <laughs> got there. So, okay. I so guess that makes to sense. To recap then. and summarize, in case we lost you all, <laughs> if you these this group that you're talking about, right. Doesn't agree with the Second Vatican Council. Correct. They're not excommunicated from the church. Right. And so the question is, could you go to a sac- receive a sacrament from that group and it be valid? Right. And the answer is yes. Yes. Because the reason they haven't been excommunicated is because Vatican II is a tricky little council. <laughs> it's an ecumenical council, right. highest teaching authority, but it was all pastoral, which right. means it was all about communicating faith. Yes. They didn't make any doctrinal changes. There, there were no dogmatic... Uh, Whereas if I looked at like the Council of Nicaea, for example, right. and I disagreed with the results then of the Council heretic. of Nicaea, then that's heresy. Yeah. You don't believe in the Trinity. Right. There you go. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we got it! Now... Woo! There's a 99% chance that that conversation was of zero interest to everybody <laughs> listening. That is very true, yeah. That is a... Uh, Most people listening to this probably don't even know who the SSPX is. I didn't even know who they are. Really? I've heard of them, but I didn't know what like where Society they Society of St. Pius X? Yeah, they're like yeah, they're like the super They're like super rad trads. Yes, okay. All right. That's- they're like Latin mass only people, but also, Vatican II is terrible. That was a good example of theology and practice. There you go. We had to think it through. We did. We had to think of different <laughs> analogies. We had to think of the history of the church. But yeah. we got there. And we, we got, got and there. We got a good answer, I think. Wow. I'm pretty confident in that answer, too. Yeah, I think I'm I'm satisfied. Watch, we're going to have some canon yeah. law person like, write in and be like, you guys, go, you guys are heretics. <laughs> We excommunicate ourselves. Yeah. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we should probably keep going. We're 52 minutes. Maybe that was more than 10 minutes. Maybe, I don't know. It could have been. <laughs> anyway. So the aim of the church and her official system is simply to secure that great and primary Christian idea that there is properly only one authority, only one teacher, only one sanctifier, one pastor, Christ the Lord. Amen. If there was not 
I think that is the best possible passage we could have read to wrap up our little discussion we just had. There's a there's a good passage that I wish we had read before we got into that conversation. <laughs> yeah, let's get back on track here. This is a passage, and it kind of captures it captures the essence of this section. So, and and he quotes a bunch of different people throughout here, but just just listen to this. All right. So it is possible, as St. Augustine insisted, that the human element may obtrude itself and color the administration of the church discipline, and that there may be errors and mistakes. So this is what we were talking about, right? Okay, this yeah. is about the flaws of the apos- of the bishops. Okay, yeah. Yet, even though there may be mistakes of detail, the luminous goal, the directive principles, and the decisive means of church discipline are, so the Catholic is convinced, determined by Christ, and pertain to his truth, love, and power. The Catholic knows that the rule of the church incarnate absolute truth, justice, and love, and has solved this problem. Is not all human exercise of authority tantamount to a usurpation? Usurpation? How do you say that? Usurp? To usurp? What is it? Let me see this. <laughs> I was doing so good. You were. <laughs> Where are we at? Luminous goal, determined by Christ, Dostoevsky. Did you get to that part? Yeah, it's the next sentence. Usurpation, yeah. Okay. Very good. Sound it out. What's usurpation mean? I have no that idea. means well, to, to uprise, right? Yeah. Okay. Back to this. <laughs> yes. If it be merely human, it is for every merely human governance necessarily rests on might, whether it be the tyranny of an individual or the depotism of a community. Only in theocracy is a man free from other men, for he serves no man but God. Therein lies the secret of that childlike obedience, so incomprehensible to the outsider, which the Catholic gives to his church. On obedience, whereby he freely and cheerfully submits his own little notions and wishes to the will of Christ, expressed in the action of authority. So this is what we were talking about earlier about the humility necessary for. Yeah. Um, and he says, in obedience, whereby his own small and limited self is enlarged to the measure of the great self of the church. That is no corpse-like obedience or slave mentality, but a profoundly religious act, an absolute devotion to the will of Christ, which rules the church, a service of God. And so this obedience is not cowardly and weak, but strong, ready for sacrifice, manly, brave, even in the presence of kings. So that is kind of weird. He doesn't get into what we talked about, about, you know, what about the apostolic succession having sins and flaws and stuff like that? He he just sort of takes the faith approach to it. It's yeah. like the Holy Spirit guides the church. Ultimately, I'm going to give my obedience to the church. Because to give my obedience to the church is to give my obedience to Christ. Yes. And that's a simple way of looking at it. It is. But I like I like that he used this line. This is not a slave mentality. It's a religious act. And it's brave, and it's not cowardly, and it's ready for sacrifice. That's a that's a powerful way of looking at that. Well, yeah, it's it's not. It, it, it yeah, because it's a free act. 
God does not force me to be a Christian. It's a choice. I have to freely accept it or not. Yeah, and, you know, he says at, at the end of this passage, I know not if the bonds that in times of peace hold their members together would not be broken and utterly shattered, and those Christians blown off before the wind. But one thing I know, the bond which binds the church and her members together will be broken by no devil, no demon, and no man, for it is not of this world. It is woven by church's Lord, by the God-man, Christ Jesus. Amen. We're at, what, an hour-ish? Yep. I I guess we'll stop reading. <laughs> Did I plan on discussing that apostolic succession for that long no no i did not <laughs> i think either of us did we are according to this we are 16 percent of the way through the book <laughs> wow jeez but you get the idea at least we we hope if there's one thing we can say it's that you got a real interesting dialogue on apostolic succession yes that is true that yes we hit we nailed that topic we did now i want to shift gears and talk about Step away from the book for a second. All right. The author of this book. What's his name again? We should tell people his name again. Carl Adams, I believe. Okay. Um, German theologian. Oh, boy. In the early 20th century. He was never a member of the Nazi party. Okay. But he did, in his writings, not this one, this one's purely ecclesiological. Yeah. Ecclesi- ecclesial. Ecclesial in nature. Right. He he wrote a book called The Germans in Christ. He wrote a book on nationalism and religion. And it's nothing that's like, if you just read it and you didn't know anything, you'd be like, this guy's just patriotic, I guess. But because of his, what one of the things he did in history is he was trying to, as the Nazi party got more and more extreme mm-hmm. and the church was distancing itself, yeah, he was trying to sort of bring the two back together. Mm. How was he trying to do that? By defending Germany here, by explaining catholicism a part of catholicism here by like trying to find common ground between the two okay um anyways that being said historically speaking he's not a nazi and he did never join the party but the if you look back on it you're a little bit upset that he didn't critique it more like one guy one guy, one bishop called him the most creative theologian of that time period, but also the most naive. That's what they said about him. Oh. Because of his refusal to like condemn that. So he pretty much like lived on bridges. Like he just wanted to build bridges everywhere and, and not That's what it sounds like. And if I think of someone like Dorothy Day. Hmm. No, not Dorothy Day, uh Edith Stein. Okay. Um she was like that in World War One. Very hopeful of the future of Germany. Very trying to use the church to help Germany and vice versa. But she distanced herself when it got to a certain point. 
Um, mm, and we're and he didn't. It, not not to that level. Gotcha. And so, but what's also interesting is there's no mention of any of that in this book, and this book is quoted from in the Second Vatican Council and in a couple papal encyclicals by a couple different popes. So it's valid theology what he has here. Yeah. It's just one of those interesting things when in history you're reading something good that someone did, but they their their personal character is questionable. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he should have openly condemned Nazism. Absolutely. And I think the thing is, you can't put it all on him either because while the German bishops were very much like, eh, this is messed up, but like there were forces within the church that were trying to, whether it was appeasement or it was like, we're just going to lay low or it was like, I mean, there's so many different angles uh, within the church regarding the Nazis. I mean, yeah. You look at, you know, for example, like Pope Benedict, it, like, was in the Hitler Youth or, like, in a... But he wasn't, like, fully in... Like, but Germany at that time, a lot of people don't understand this or refuse to understand this. I, I think most people... If they had a choice, would not choose martyrdom. I think when it came down to brass tacks, survival is what most people would choose. Yeah. And so if you have a an entity, for example, like the Nazi Party, that's basically you're either for us or you're on a list. I think most people, at least at the surface level, would not speak out against it. Yeah, and I, I try and I always try and avoid like armchair quarterbacking. Yeah. And I think about my own like our own situation. Like usually when something goes down geopolitically, I my instinct is to like defend the US. Yeah. You know, and there's limits to it. I mean, obviously I don't think everything we've ever done was perfect, but that's my instinct. And yeah. so is it hard for me to believe that other people didn't have that going on at that time? No, I mean, I, I understand yeah. it. Um, and like I said, it, with him in particular, there's a lot of, like, guesswork about it. Mm. Like, how how much assimilation did he do? Maybe he critiqued, who knows? But I think the point, the thing that I find interesting is you have a good theological work here, and it seems it seems wrong to just ignore it for maybe an affiliation he might have had. You know right. what I mean? Well, yeah, that's that speaks to what we were uh, talking about, whether it's this episode or different episodes. You know, taking the good of something and the truth of something, if it's true and it is good, then you take it. Yeah. And in this case, this book is true and good, at least from the church's standpoint. So it's you know at the very least you can you can read it and digest it. Yeah. You know. 
Yeah, but I I just wanted to bring that up in case somebody yelled at us by googling right. the author. Oh yeah, somebody. Yeah, no, yeah. I get that. But I mean, you know, reading what he talks about, he doesn't mention Germany. No, he he doesn't mention it at all in this yeah. book. Yeah. So, you know, if he, if he mentioned that stuff, then it'd be a whole different story. Right. But he doesn't. That's not what the book's about. So, yeah. Yeah. And so if you enjoyed those six passages that we were able to actually read. <laughs> Man! You know what, though? That's I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, that that's the sign of a good, interesting book. Is if, yeah. you, if, if you and I are, have to talk about something that was said for 20 minutes. Right. Maybe. So you should definitely go check it out. That yeah. means there's a depth to it. If, there's, if we were able to come up with an hour plus of, of conversation as a result of this book... 16 percent of it yeah yeah i mean that's that speaks to the work itself he has some good stuff on the papacy in particular that's what that opening passage i read mm-hmm. was about was about yeah. like you know you have all these empires that have come and gone but the papacy remains you know and it, he's right. speaking to the basically the per- permanence of the church and uh so he has a lot of stuff on that that we didn't really get to that's the next topic he gets into. But first, he was discussing apostolic succession, which, as you know, is where we got hung up. <laughs> <laughs> right. So. But I mean, yeah. But that's that's what Christ said. You know, the gates of the nether will, will not prevail that, against yep. the church. Yeah. So empires will come and go. They have. And the church remains. Praise God. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. We'll catch you on the next one. Goodbye. Peace.